Regardless, uh, we have an appointment with God's word this morning, uh, yet again, and so I'd ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of James, James chapter 1, James 1, will be in verses 17 and 18, with UCLA finally starting and some of the semester schools, you guys are already midterming. I talked to someone earlier who had already done two midterms. Um, wow. <laughs> A bunch to look forward to, Bruins. Um, and in considering what would be helpful, I want to look at a passage this morning that uh, helps us look at all that we are and all that we have, and that prompts us to look to the giver of all good gifts. And it's a passage that stirs our hearts toward gratitude as we begin a, a quarter or continue a semester. James chapter 1 Uh, verses 17 and 18. Let's begin by reading our passage, and then we'll pray, and then we'll look at it together. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we attend to your word this morning yet again, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts open to your truth. Help us this morning to grasp anew your goodness to us and your generosity to us. And so, Uh, May your word, by the power of your spirit, do a work in our lives to make us a grateful people, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I want to begin by asking you to recall an experience I'm sure many of us have had over the years. Maybe a time when it was Christmas or your birthday or somebody else's birthday when you either gave or received A gift, but not just any old gift. It was a gift that probably was in sort of an unassuming box of some kind, a big one, that had a suspicious kind of weight to it. And then under the occasion-appropriate gift wrap, Christmas, birthday, there was a suspicious layer of duct tape. And then inside that box, once you got all the duct tape off, there was probably an empty box, the latest game console sort of box that you went to too many Best Buys to, to get out of the trash can. And then there was another box, and then another box, and more duct tape, and maybe another box, and finally uh, a really small box. And suspiciously, the whole time, as you or your friend is or opening the box, uh, somebody's filming. And that final box is opened, and alas, a rock. <laughs> or a phone book, or whatever unwanted white elephant gift that uh, keeps getting passed around your friend group, that kind of gift. We all have probably given or received or seen a video of this kind of prank gift. It's a tale as old as YouTube. And because, though, you're a sweet and true and thoughtful friend, of course, afterward, you probably give an actual thoughtful gift as a follow-up to your friend with the gift receipt tucked considerately inside. Matthew 7, Jesus speaks of this instinct in all of us, even after the best prank gift ever, the instinct to give good gifts. Jesus says this, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? This morning, James, the half-brother of Jesus, draws from this truth 
in Jesus' great sermon. And God knows we need this kind of reminder, this look at God's goodness. We need to pause and acknowledge the God who gives all things good. Uh, The one who so generously and graciously guides us with his good gifts through all of life along that trail. Not with meager breadcrumbs, but with five course meals flowing out of his infinite goodness and kindness to us. Friends, as we embark on this new school year, it's a new season of so much of taking a hold of, with our own two hands, all of the responsibilities and studies and duties that we have, perhaps even ministry that we have. And so I know and you know our hearts are not naturally drawn toward gratitude in this kind of a moment. It's not that we think of thanking God as much as we are to think to grab this thing by the horns and just get cranking on our own strength. We've gotten used to the paradigm of working hard for and earning all that is good in our lives, uh, down to the dollar and cent. After all, isn't that stewardship? Isn't good stewardship always rewarded by a good God? We've got it down to a a line of code that runs one for one, effort with blessing, effort with blessing, effort with blessing. That's how it works, right? And so we work hard and life is good, upper middle class life. And so God is good, I guess. Crossroads, if we're honest, our sense of entitlement And thanklessness may be one of the ugliest and most pervasive sins of omission that we commit against our good and generous king. We live in the land of plenty and we're too busy gorging ourselves to notice the hand of God pouring out his blessing on our lives. At best, we may thank him generally before our meals, but we do it half-heartedly and with one, one eye open, so to speak. Our cup continually floweth over, but our hearts don't, does, don't overflow with thanksgiving like they should. The epistle of James is a high-definition display of what true faith looks like, what true saving faith should look like, how... Uh, True saving faith is a faith that is lived out and obvious to those around you. This morning is a poignant reminder that true faith acknowledges God's blessings and responds in trust and in thankfulness. True faith sees the hand of God in everything and responds in trust and in thankfulness. So let's look this morning from these two verses at three truths about the goodness of God. Three truths about the goodness of God. The first we see in the first half of verse 17, and it's this, that God is the source of all good things. God is the source of all good things. Look at verse 17 again, just the first part. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Here in the beginning of this verse, we see this truth plainly. God is the origin of all that is good. He is the fount from which every Blessing springs in your life. He is the source of all good things. Here in James 1, in the section directly before this, James talks about, you know, the inner workings of sin and temptation. And he points out that we have a tendency to blame shift and blame God in our moments of temptation. 
that we have a propensity for shifting the blame away from us and onto God. And that's why verse 16, look there, it says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. I think that verse belongs more with that paragraph above than it does with our passage, but it relates to ours as well. Because you see, in our blessings, James will show us here, we have a tendency to forget the goodness of God. It's the opposite of our sin and temptation. In our sin and temptation, we tend to blame God. We look at him and say, why, God? But with our blessings, we tend to forget God. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. We have a propensity for tracing the good in our lives, not to God, but to our own achievement, to our own securing the bag, to our own efforts. Well, here in verse 17, we see very plainly, God is the giver of all that is good. Uh, from the heights of uh, apparent and obvious blessing in your life to the depths of his goodness in trials, whether it be smooth sailing or we are tossed about by waves of trials. God is the source of all good things in each and every situation. Whether you get into the program you wanted to get into or you grow in trust because you are rejected, God is the source of all that is good in each. Whether you are in the relationship you wanted to be in or you grow in contentment because you are single for a little longer than you would wish, God is the source of all that is good in each. Whether the experimental treatment works or the illness is terminal and untreatable, God is the source of all that is good in each. Crossroads, whatever your station in this life, all that is apparently and obviously good now and all that is good that you cannot now see as good, it may be that you will only see as good in, in hindsight later and some of which you will only see as good in eternity maybe. All that is good in your life is from God. This truth that God is the source of all good things is rooted in his very nature as the creator of all things. Turn to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, with me to see this very quickly. Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we see that this truth of the goodness of God is rooted in creation and it pervades all that God spoke into existence, ex nihilo. Look at Genesis 1 and look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. After creating the dry land and forming the seas in verse 10, and God saw that it was good. Chapter 1, verse 12, look at that. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind, and God saw that it was good. After creating the sun and the moon and separating light from darkness, God saw that it was good, and he created sea creatures in verse 21 and fish and the birds of the air. God saw that it was good. And the sushi lovers also said amen. Verse 25, God created livestock. There you go, beef lovers. And creeping things, don't eat those. And beasts of the earth, end of verse 25, God saw that it was good. And then the end of chapter one, look at verse 26. We need to look at these verses because they're so important, so formative to our worldview. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the, the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then verse 28, God commissions man, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over its creatures. And then look down at verse 31 of chapter 1 still. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. In creation, all that God spoke into existence is a reflection of, a manifestation of his own goodness, his own nature as a good God. That's why Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. To help us understand this concept of the goodness of God, uh, I think Joel Beakey is helpful. He says the goodness of God uh, is a term that can have the sense of ethical or moral uprightness, but often denotes the divine kindness, benevolence, and forgiveness of God. God exhibited his goodness in the work of creation, and he showers it upon his people so that they marvel at his exceedingly great goodness. I love what another famous theologian, Stephen Charnock, says. He says, the goodness of God is the brightness and the loveliness of our majestical creator. Uh, Burkhoff says that the goodness of God is the benevolent interest of God toward his creatures. There's a direction in that definition that I love. And so rooted in creation, but extending to all of life, God's goodness is displayed and demonstrated over and over and over throughout Scripture. Think of Israel, God in his goodness guides them. God in his goodness provides for them. God in his goodness forgives them. God in his goodness even disciplines them and shows them his ways of righteousness. God in his goodness loves them faithfully despite their sin. Isn't that true of me and you as well? God's good gifts in the history of Israel are evident throughout. Their questioning answered with quail. Their murmuring met with manna. Their whining replied to with water at the rock of Meribah. God does not spare good gifts from those who are his. And as for those who are his in Christ, God's goodness is also and even more so evident. James here, turn back to James. James here says every good and perfect gift is from Above, literally, if you have uh, the NASB or the LSB, you would see every good thing given and every perfect gift. Uh, There are two different words here used for gift. Many translations like the ESV take it as sort of a compound phrase, good and perfect gift. But one word here, I think the, the distinction's helpful that you see in the NASB and the LSB is that one word seems focused on the act of giving and the other word focuses on the gift as an entity or as a, a noun, a substantive. And so there is a cross-hatching, a comprehensiveness to the quality and the value of God's act of giving in this verse and of the gifts themselves. Just like in creation, God who was good created something and gave something to the world and because of his inherent goodness, it was also good. It's the same we see here in James. This is reminiscent of uh, James 1.5. Look at that. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. It is in God's nature to give good 
things. In chapter 1, verse 5, that's wisdom. And in our verse, chapter 1, verse 17, it is good gifts, all of them. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Turn with me to another psalm and see this, Psalm 145. Psalm 145. I think it's a helpful exercise in seeing the goodness of God and what our response should be. Psalm 145, look at verse 9. Uh, Let's start in 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. And then our response in verse 10, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. Drop down to verse 15 and see the same pattern. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. See God's goodness in the way that he deals with those who are his. And then look at verse 21, our response again. The psalmist says this, My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. What is our right response to the goodness of God? It's simple, to give Thanks, to give thanks. When was the last time that you wrote a thank you card? It's a, an art that is foreign to our modern world. It's alien, isn't it? We'd rather whip out the text machine and go T H. X. Done. Thankful. On to the next. Thank you cards. There's something about them that is authentic and earnest and old school cool. I think Amazon's going to get a few orders after this. There's something gratifying and gratitude-inducing about a pen hitting paper. If you're a theology major at TMU, you probably have a fountain pen. And so you unscrew your fountain pen, change the ink, get the card out. Oh, wait, that's a, that's a congrats card. Let me get a thank you card. And you begin to write and you think, what exactly am I trying to say as I thank this person? A thank you card is a humble gesture of appreciation from human to human. Well, in view of the goodness of God, our only right response is to give thanks. But Crossroads, in our lives, there must be significant moments where we stop and think in a thank you card kind of slow down way about how God has been good to us. There must be authentic and earnest appreciation to God, the giver of all that is good. Christian, your prayers ought not to be vain repetitions that give lip service to God for his good gifts, but rather cognizant heartfelt and specific rehearsals of God's goodness, radiant worship to the giver of all things good. God is the source of all things good. Secondly, we see in this text that God is unchangingly good. In the second half of verse 17, turn back to James we see the truth that God is good, unchangingly so. God, you see, is not only the source of all good things, he himself is good. That's who he is. 
Look again at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That he gives good and perfect gifts stems from the fact that he is unchangingly good. His giving of good is rooted in his goodness. He is unswervingly, unflinchingly, unfailingly good. It's simple truth and it's easy to pass over. But that's what this verse is telling us. Because here God is the father of lights. We looked at this already in Genesis 1. A God who on the very first day of creation said, let there be light, and there was light, and he saw that the light was good. A God who on the fourth day created the sun and the moon and the stars, and he saw that what he spoke into being was good. This is the God, James says, the father of lights, who from day one, even until now, is the source of all that is good. And he himself is good. Psalm 136 explodes in thanksgiving through this lens. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then verse 7 says, To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun and the moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, that psalm says. God, the father of lights, also is himself light. A picture not just of his generous giving as the good God, but also of the moral goodness of God. I think of 1 John 1 verse 5, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Or in John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus himself, the light of life, the light of the world. Christian, that's why you are called to let your light shine before men, Matthew 5. It's why you're called to shine as lights in the world, as children of God amidst a crooked and twisted generation, Philippians 2. It's why you are called to be children of light, children of the day, 1 Thessalonians 5. Well, here in James, light illustrates this unchanging goodness of God, both his benevolence toward his creatures and his moral purity, his goodness. You see, with God, James says, there is no variation or shadow due to change. You see, while the sun and the moon and the stars that he created orbit and shift and change and the planets get deleted from the solar system and then brought back in, the light of the sun affecting the growth of the flora and fauna of our earth, the waxing and waning of the moon, causing the ocean's tides to ebb and flow. With the Father of lights, there is no such variation or shifting shadow. He is constant. He is unchanging. It's what theologians call the immutability of God, his unchangeable, constant nature, uh, which feeds into his faithfulness and his steadfast love that you and I know it's not just that he doesn't change, it's that he cannot change. He does not change and he cannot change. It is his very nature to be the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He is unchangeably and constantly the ultimate source and standard of all that is good. We've got a day coming up that I think is the least favorite day of everyone in this room. Daylight savings. Next to tax day, if you're grown up um, and your, your papa's not paying your taxes still. 
daylight savings is probably the worst day. I think the one coming up, though, is supposedly the good one. Fall back, right? Spring forward, fall back. It's supposedly the good one, but it's, you know, awful and terrible. You think it's awesome, so you stay up late, and then you fall asleep the next morning. It's supposed to be good, but it's not. We blame it on in the modern day, and Wikipedia blames it on farmers, right? We say, oh, it's farmer's fault, and we don't live in that kind of a place anymore, and we need to change it. I think we've had an actual case here for government deception, uh, finally. If anyone wants to run for president, I think it's a political platform, the, the anti-daylight savings crew, 2024. I'm with you. Make me vice president. Daylight savings is our futile human attempt to compensate, and futile, underline that, right? To compensate for the changes in the amount of daylight between the seasons. Again, blame the farmers. With God, the Father of lights, who is himself light, we need not adjust for, uh, we need not compensate for, We need not account for any variation or shifting as if he would be good to us in one moment and against us in the next. That's not who he is. He does not change. He does not waver. He is always good. There are times when it's harder to believe this truth that God is good. When you can't see that God is good, but that is not because God is not good It's because the trial or temptation you face is obscuring your view of the goodness of God. Friends, the only suitable response to this truth that God does not shift, he does not change in his goodness toward us is to stop and realize that we must thank him that he is that way. But also that we can and that we must trust him in any In every circumstance, we can run to him because he will not change. And he is always good to us. When we face trials and temptations, the very fiery trials we see in the book of James, we have a heavenly father who is unchangingly good. In full faith and trust, we must respond to the father of lights. We must thank him and we must trust him. You see, because God is unchangingly good, you can trust him in every changing situation. Because God's goodness is unwavering, you can run to him in unwavering trust. God is always good and so we ought to always trust him. There's a third truth about the goodness of God we see in this passage in verse 18, and it's this, that God is the giver of the best gift. God is the giver of the best gift. Here in verse 18, we see and we respond in thankfulness and trust because God is the giver of the best gift, gift, new life in him. New life in him. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I think this verse, when I read it, is one of the most underrated gospel verses that we have in the New Testament. Of all the mountaintop vistas in Romans and Ephesians and Uh, Philippians and all the different places we look to for gospel truth. This verse so succinctly shows us God brought us forth. It's beautiful. Here we see what theologians call the new birth, that God has brought us forth. Uh, Think back to the imagery of verse 15. Look at verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's James's theology of how sin comes about in our hearts. This is the same word here, here in verse 18. James is 
drawing an obvious contrast, if you were to read it through these few verses, between that which our own desires bring forth and then that which God brings forth. Our desires bring forth sin and ultimately spiritual death. But God brings forth all that is good, and the very best of which is new life in him. Now, this is what we're referring to when we call someone a born-again Christian. It's what we call regeneration. Turn over with me to John 3. John 3 is sort of the landmark passage on the new birth. So we need to look at it together. John 3, let's look at what this new birth is. Here we see Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, come to Jesus at night. And he's wondering how it is that Jesus does the miracles that he does. Nicodemus is in awe of Jesus as he watches Jesus and listens to Jesus. And Nicodemus, he wants the secret sauce. So he comes to Jesus at night. Uh, Begin actually in chapter 2, verse 23, for a little bit of context. Now, uh, John 2, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. It's important context there. And then chapter three. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Jesus, knowing Nicodemus's heart, just like he knew the heart of every man, answers Nicodemus, addressing his question, but addressing more importantly, what Nicodemus truly needed. It kind of reminds me of our pastor, John. Someone comes up in a Q&A with a silly question, and he says, well, what you really meant to ask, and what I, the real question is this. And then he goes on and answers the question, right? We know and love our pastor that way. And verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus picks up on Jesus' metaphor in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And then verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then look at verse 7. Again, this theme of being born again. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You see, Jesus knew that Nicodemus needed regeneration by the Holy Spirit, spiritual transformation that was not of his own efforts, a new birth, spiritual life given to him that was of God and not of man. Not of right or ritual or regulation as Nicodemus had up to this point in his life so rigidly and regularly maintained as the teacher of Israel. Nick here is looking to add to his resume. He wants what Jesus has. He wants to figure it out. And Jesus here says, you don't need to add something more. You don't need to do more things or keep up your religious externals. There must be instead a radical change in your inward reality. And you cannot accomplish it yourself. You must be born again. You may be here this morning thinking like Nicodemus, that going to church or joining a campus fellowship after you've checked 35 of them out and you've finally settled 
You may think there's something that you have to do in this season of life to make sure you are right with God. And of course, it sort of helps make your college experience fun and you have friends that way. You might think there are things you must add. You, you must add accountability. You must add this, this app. You must do this or that. You must attend every single birthday celebration at GOC UCLA. That there are things that you must do to be right with God or that you need to be constantly adding to your spiritual resume to be right with him. Friend, if that's your understanding, you must be born again. That's it. That's the spiritual reality. It's how it all works. John 3 here speaks of the water and the spirit uh, in this new birth. And Titus 3.5 is similar. It says there, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Uh, both of which, this John 3 passage and then Titus 3 also, are a reference to Ezekiel 36, where God promises to give his people a new heart a heart of flesh in place of their heart of stone, and then to sprinkle clean water on them, cleansing them of all their uncleannesses and all their idols. That's the washing of regeneration, this new birth that involves a cleansing of sin. That's the water in John 3, the water in Titus 3. What of the Spirit? Uh, We could go to Romans 8, which speaks vividly of this life that the Christian now has in the Spirit, no longer living according to the flesh and its desires, but according to the Spirit, who Paul says there dwells in you. So this regeneration, this new birth, involves a cleansing, a washing, and God's giving of his Spirit to dwell in us and help us. This is how God brought us forth. This is the new birth in James, the very best of the gifts that he gives us. Crossroads, not simply a refresh or a dressing up of the old, but a new man, as Ezekiel 36 pictures it, a new heart, as James pictures it, being brought forth. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. By the Spirit's work, God takes us who were dead in our sin and brings us forth into new life. That's the divine perspective of what's going on here. Uh, practically, for you, if you don't know Christ, uh, how can you be born again? Acts 16, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Uh, Believe in his saving work on the cross and that he had victory over sin and over death and that in him you have forgiveness of sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Uh, God will bring you forth of his own will. In James here, we see this beautiful truth of God's goodness to us in that he brings us forth to new life. Now, we all know someone who takes too much credit. Too much credit for something, right? The group project or the tire change on the side of the road or the white water rafting trip, they did it all, right? Even in pickup basketball, it's about their assists, not about your points, right? They're the one, of course, that discovered the cool taco spot that you found on Yelp. Friends, using theological frameworks sometimes, or sometimes just in the self-centeredness of our own hearts, we have the tendency to think about our own salvation and to claim too much credit for what God has done. But this morning, a simple reflection on the clear truth of regeneration, on the new birth, helps us to consider 
and reconsider how much credit we should actually take. What part did you have in your own literal physical birth? Like, tell me, do you remember the day that you were born? Aside from the pictures your parents show you, what did you contribute to you being born? It's the same with your spiritual birth. You contribute nothing to it except the sin that made it necessary. And God, by his washing of your uncleanness and his giving of the Spirit, brought you forth to life. This work, James says, is of his own will. It's what he willed to do. It's what he desired to do. It's what he wanted to do in extending his grace and his mercy upon sinners. It's not of us. It's all God's work. It's of his own will. It's his own initiative. No one told him what to do. He didn't pull regeneration out of the suggestion box in the back. This work is of his own will. John 1 reinforces this, this, reinforces this truth. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. James is saying here, God brought us forth also here by the word of truth, he says. Friends, isn't that how it works? By the word of truth, by the truth we find in God's word, the gospel, that faithful Sunday school teacher maybe for you who answered all of your questions and quizzed you on the books of the Bible or that friend who so patiently walked with you through the book of John and put their arm around you during that trial or that summer of turmoil where in your own heart you were thinking upon the deep things of life and just read God's word cover to cover. God brought us forth of his own will, and by the word of truth. And then look at the end of verse 18. James shows us the purpose, sort of the end of this, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This term first fruits is a reference to God's law in the book of Exodus, that God's people were to bring the very best of their crop in offering to Yahweh first. And so we are, James is saying, the best and also the first of God's eternal righteous reign over all things. As human beings created in the image of God, as the capstone of creation, we are the premier examples of God's own goodness. We demonstrate, we represent what it is to be a new creation to have a new nature, new desires, a new love for God and for others, to love the things he loves and to hate the things he hates. So it's in this way that we are a kind of first fruits of his creatures, that we are, as the creation groans in eager longing with our lives, a foretaste of the new creation, that we are in our life in the light, in our practicing of righteousness, a sneak peek of the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. First Samuel 7, and we'll end with this, tells of a time of revival for the people of Israel. Uh, there was national repentance uh, for sin. God's people uh, brought forth their idols and destroyed their idols and Israel began to wholeheartedly seek Yahweh. And then God's people gather at Mizpah to confess their sin and then Samuel offers a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And while Samuel is sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines attack And then in chapter 7, verse 10, it says this, but Yahweh thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. 
And then after the dust settles in thankfulness, Samuel puts up a memorial stone, a stone of remembrance to the Lord. And he calls it an Ebenezer, a stone of help, literally. A stone commemorating God's supernatural help in confusing the Philistines on the battlefield. And so every time God's people would pass by Mizpah, they would see the stone and remember God's goodness. Crossroads, we have so much occasion in our lives from salvation to a new semester to stewardship in all the things that he has given us. We have so much occasion in our lives to raise an Ebenezer, to memorialize God's goodness to us in every good and perfect gift, every sign of God's good providence to us, and even in trials, every mark of his goodness in our lives, would we in thankfulness and trust raise an Ebenezer so that in our lives we would be able to look back and be reminded of all of the instances of his goodness to us. Crossroads, let's respond to God's goodness to us in our lives with trust and with thankfulness, even this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for in it we find truth. And the truth we find today is that of your infinite goodness to us. You are so generous, Father. And so as we begin a quarter and continue a semester but we stand as a people thankful to the God of all grace who gave us his son. And in his son, we rejoice because we have salvation in no other name except his. So Father, help us even this morning to have a sense of humble gratitude that will reflect that of creatures before a creator, a good God who gives all good things. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.